Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, February 27th, and this is the weekly market update. So before we get started, um, just want to remind folks that are listening on our podcasting, uh, we've made podcasts of these videos. We've put them out there uh, via Anchor. They go out to Spotify and different, I think seven or eight different podcasting platforms that folks like to use. It's really helpful to us guys. If you enjoy these videos, if you enjoy the podcast, if you get value from it, if you could take the time to um, write a review, if you could take the time to uh, however they grade those on there, like with stars or whatever, if you can give us some kind of feedback, positive, of course, uh, that would be great because it helps us move up with the rankings, introduce more people to this, uh, what we're doing here, this alternative media, you know, you're not going to see this kind of stuff on CNBC. I'm just going to get ready to show you an example of the nonsense that goes on in the mainstream media, the lies, the distortions, the BS, the bait click. I mean, I'm totally against this. So we're trying to put out good information here. Well, I shouldn't say we, I am. And I try to aggregate information from a lot of really smart people. And saying that this week, you know, I have, I put it in the show notes. I have a side site where I just curate and upload links to podcasts, videos, research papers, whatever I find that I am looking at for um, different things that go into investing or, or macro uh, themes, whatever. And you may find that interesting because believe me, I'm not an expert on macroeconomics or microeconomics. Uh, I'm not a financial forecaster. I'm a guy trying to make a buck in these markets. Uh, I do have some wisdom. I do have some experience, hard gained. I have a lot of um, slashing wounds on me from the battles I've been in, but I'm trying to help you become more successful at your investing and try to get you to think right about how these things work. So there's a lot of smart people. They give away a lot of their information and I try to aggregate that. So this was a really great week uh, for that. So take a look at that. Also, please, you know, we're really grateful for the support we get here every week. Channel continues to grow. This has really grown well beyond anything I ever thought. I mean, who would want to listen to somebody, you know, who would want to listen? That's what I originally thought, but I started doing this. I stuck with it. And we've built a really great audience. I get a lot of great emails, DMs, feedback. Be surprised as different people that write to me that people they know or things that they're involved in. And it helps me get even more insight. You'd be surprised who actually listens to this. So really want to thank the listeners. It's listener supported. And we really appreciate you guys. All right, let's get into this week's uh, market update. So when I first saw this, this is the cover of the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week. And when I first saw it, I thought, I saw it on Twitter. Somebody put it up there. Actually, I was, think it was Jared Dillon. I think he writes the uh, Daily Dirt Nap. And he actually, in his tweet, and he had this in it, he actually had the, um, his, his tweet actually said, get me out of this effing market. Of course, he didn't say effing. He said, you know, F-U-C-K, this market. So, uh, and I thought this has got to be fake. I mean, Bloomberg Business Week. I mean, I used to read, I used to, have, I had a subscription to Business Week, maybe starting when I was 14 or 15 years old. My parents 
uh, were very gracious in any kind of reading I wanted to do. Uh, they would allow me to buy books. They bought them for me, magazine subscriptions. I mean, I was reading Barron's and Business Week and Forbes and these things and going to the library all the time. And there, this was like, to me, was a, like a pretty decent publication back in the day. I mean, I haven't read it in years, especially since Bloomberg took it over. I just, just don't have any interest in mainstream financial press. I know they're always way behind the curve. So I thought this was an actual parody or joke. And it's actually dated March 1st, 2021. This is going to be the, this is the current issue. And it has a picture of an Air Jordan on there. And has a little side thing here. It says, you know, sneakerheads have created a gravity-defying, pandemic-proof commodity of their own. And then it has a big, in big black on the bottom, it says, this is not a shoe. It's an asset class. I mean, they don't really ring bells. They say they don't ring bells at the top. I mean, guys, really? I know, I know a guy that does this on the side. He does shoe things. I never really got into it. He told me about it. He makes money. I don't know. It seemed like more of a hustle or something like that. But this is not an asset class. These are shoes. They're like every other collectibles. You know, I talked about this, you know, in the thing that I'm interested in as far as collectibles, which are I collect um, rookie cards, graded, high grade rookie cards of baseball Hall of Famers. That's what I'm trying to collect uh, a rookie card for each Hall of Famer in as high as condition as I can afford. And the prices for these things have blown out over the last year or so. I mean, they have went up tremendously to the point where I don't, I don't buy anything right now because prices are just too nuts because you have all these people, you know, you got Gary Vanderchuk in there. He's investing in baseball cards, you know, baseball cards and tennis shoes and, you know, 67 Barracudas and, you know, all this, these are not investments. Okay. They're collectibles. They're things that you buy because you enjoy collecting them. Uh, they remind you of maybe your youth. They bring back memories of when you followed players for myself, like in baseball and in times when it was a different time, uh, when, you know, when you were a kid. That it's for reminiscing, that kind of thing. But do I consider baseball cards an asset class? No. I mean, collectibles can go up in value. They do. Uh, but they also go down in value. And when you see things like this, you know, and I see what's going on in all these collectible classes with all of this huge rises in prices, people think that, you know, you know, there's some kind of big genius now. So you're walking down the street and you find a thousand dollar bill sitting in the gutter and you pick it up. Now you're an investor. I mean, this is what basically it's analogous to just because you find a hundred dollar bill on the street doesn't mean you're a great investor. You got lucky. And for a, this tells me a lot for a, what I thought was a mainstream serious, you know, Bloomberg charges $25,000 a year, I think for that terminal of theirs and business week used to have really great articles and just their annual review with all the companies and all the financial stuff. I used to pour through that. I mean, I thought it was a serious publication. This is ridiculous. This is clown world kind of stuff. And this is ringing the bell at the top. Now this debt-fueled, Fed-induced liquidity bubble and the everything bubble we've talked about it. And if this isn't, if this isn't a indication of that, I don't know what else is. I mean, will an asteroid please come in and hit this planet? I mean, this is too much. So 
Do I think things are going to get even crazier? Quite possibly, but this has to be, you know, there's no discussion about, you know, what's happening in reality in the financial markets. We're talking about sneakers as an asset class. It's ridiculous. So I don't know, maybe I'm an old fuddy-duddy, but I'm just telling you, I mean, this is not, you're seeing this in everything. All, all these collectible classes, uh, these guys that are hustling around, um, everybody's into it now. There's multiple, like in baseball cards, there's so many channels now where they, people have baseball investment channels, baseball card investment channels. They're not investments. They're not, they don't produce an income. They're collectibles because you enjoy collecting them and you enjoy the, the, the chasing down these different hard to get cards and the, uh, the, the, the community of people and going to card shows and this kind of stuff, that's, you know, enjoyable. It's a pastime. And, you know, maybe if you were a collector for 30 or 40 years, then you, after you tip over, you, you know, somebody inherits it and they say, oh, wow, this is pretty good collection. You can sell it. They can sell it or whatever, but it's not an investment class. So, and I'm seeing, like, like I said, you know, these prices are going nuts because everything's going nuts in price because of the bubble that we're in all this liquidity that's being created by these central banks. It's all going to end badly. So I wanted to talk about uranium. This is something that is, you know, undervalued uh, still, even after the moves we've seen. And, you know, the news just keeps trickling out, right? Um, I don't really talk too much about uranium. I've said why I have it in the past, just because there's not much to say. I mean, the supply is going down, the demand's going up and price will eventually have to, you know, go up to pretty, a pretty decent amount to incentivize the new supply that will be required to supply all the new reactors and current reactors. But this is something we were waiting to see. So yellow cake PLC, which is the kind of the UPC equivalents in Great Britain announced that they are going to purchase 3.5 million pounds of uranium from Kaz Prom after it raising $140 million in a recent uh, offering. So basically, if you're not familiar with what like Yellow Cake does and UPC, they basically just buy uranium on, this, on the market and hold it. Okay, so it gives you a, a kind of like closed end funds, if you will. So what happens is, the shares trade in the open market and sometimes they trade below net asset value, which has been the case for a while, or in some cases, the share price will trade above net, net asset value. So you've seen that like in the grayscale Bitcoin fund, that, that was a situation there where it traded way above its net asset value. Same thing's happening with yellow cake. So I think I looked it up. The current net asset value is like 2.34 British pounds and the share price is like 3.2 or 3.3 British pounds. So the share price is selling at a premium to the net asset value. So it makes sense for them to sell shares and buy uranium. They're basically, uh, they're not uh, undercutting their net asset value. So that's what they've done. As a matter of fact, the original proposed amount was for 110 million, but the uptake on the offering was so high, they raised it to 140 million. So that tells you there's demand out there. There's more demand than they thought. And so if you go back, uh, I'm not going to get into it here, but if you go look at the documents and look at the Yellow Cake website, you should know if you've been following Uranium, they have a, they have a agreement with Kaz Edinprom that allows them to buy a certain amount of Uranium every year if they choose to. 
uh, I think for the next eight or nine years, something like that. So they're exercising that option this year. So what that tells everybody is this is, you know, this is just another, this isn't just one event that's going to be the catalyst, but this is one of many events that we just keep seeing uh, more and more of these, of these news items that are positive for the price of uranium. Um, the other thing that came out this week is, you know, France's Nuclear Safety Authority agreed this last Thursday to extend the operational lifetime of the country's 32 oldest nuclear reactors by a decade to as much as 50 years. Well, that's great because that's in more demand that wasn't anticipated, right? Because we're seeing that all over the world now. We're seeing that the engineering and manufacturing processes for these reactors was so good that they have the ability to continue to generate electricity well beyond what people originally thought when they designed them. And we're seeing that not just in France, but all over the world. And with the current zeitgeist, ESG zeitgeist, you know, nuclear is becoming more and more into the discussion of carbon-free clean energy. Um, even the Biden administration is speaking positively about it. So uh, what I found interesting when you read the article, and I'll put a link to both of these items, um, it was funny that Germans were complaining that France was doing this because, you know, Germany, you know, as part of their energy transition and because of what happened in Fukushima has committed to shutting all of the nuclear reactors by 2022, I believe. And so, you know, if I can't have something and you have it, I'm just going to try to break it. So it's one of those deals. Um, pretty short sighted of the Germans to shut their reactors, but nevertheless, they'll just keep importing more nuclear generated electricity from France. Um, UPC is actually also, which is the Uranium Participation Corp, is actually trading at a premium to it. it's, its net asset value. So I would expect them to be making an announcement to as an offering and going into the market to buy more uranium. Now, what we've been hearing, especially if you listen to the Smith Weekly presentation with Michael Alkin and uh, uh, guys from uh, uh, Sashim Cove, uh, the hedge fund that invests in uranium, I think it was on last week. I put a link to it in the uh, show notes. I mean, you know, we know that there's not, the spot market's shriveling up. There's not that much material out there. And people are just like, well, why is the spot price going up? You know, why is it? So be patient. This is happening. I mean, there's basically no mining, I don't think, happening in North America right now of uranium mining that I can think of. Somebody can correct me, but most of the mines are, uranium mines are closed now or on care and maintenance and yet the demand is there so you know we're getting to that tipping point uh i think this is going to be the year when you actually start seeing the spot price move higher you'll start seeing announcements that utilities are signing term agreements i think this is going to be the year and regardless the stocks are already sniffing it out the other question i have here the last bullet point i had was how many hedge funds can see what is happening with uranium supply and are going to enter the market and buy physical? They did it last cycle. So I found an article about a hedge fund that did this. Um, I'm sure it wasn't the only one where they had established their positions in various uranium mining companies, which there weren't that many at the beginning of the last cycle. And then they were in buying physical uranium. So these hedge funds exist to make money. And if they think that they can make money and they smell a scenario where um, there's a supply deficit and 
they can take a position in stocks and then start buying because you can buy physical uranium. I think you have to buy it in hundred thousand pound lots, but you can store it. Uh, you can buy it and store it. You can do that. And, um, I mean, if you're a big player, you could, you know, you could buy yourself a hundred thousand pounds and store it cost you about 3 million bucks. And, uh, why not? Right. And if you're a big player, say you had a billion dollar hedge fund and you wanted to put a hundred million in, I mean, you could buy a bunch of the stocks and then, you know, put 50 or $60 million scale into, uh, over time. And if more than, you know, one or two people start doing this, uh, you could really, uh, light a fire under the price. Uh, Cause this is what happened last time. It then becomes a speculative frenzy, a feedback loop. It starts feeding on itself. The price moves higher, attracts more speculators, rinse and repeat. So this is what, uh, you know, we can really see happen. And, you know, I re like I've told the story before, I can remember during the last bull market when they would come out with the weekly spot or the weekly price updates for uranium, it would just like go up every week. Oh, it was up $2. And when next week it was up $1.50. Then the next week it was up, you know, 75 cents and it was up $3. I mean, it's just like, does this ever go down? And um, of course, you know, the share prices exploded higher uh, based on this. So, um, the other thing I want to point out is with a lot of commodity markets and resource markets, when they're in extended bear markets, uh, they usually, you know, they can lose anywhere from 80 to 90% of their value, which is typical. But when they do recover, it's not unusual for them to overshoot on the upside and exceed the previous highs from the previous cycle. So um, a lot of people don't want to say that, but uh, there's a very good possibility that could happen. Why, why, why could it not? You know, that's not atypical. That's, uh, or that's not un, uh, unheard of to happen. So uh, something else to think about. So I was talking about um, all the good people that, we, that I follow and curate their, their um, work. There's a guy that I follow. I get his emails. I think he works for CMG Wealth Managers or something. He puts out this uh, weekly email. They also have it on their site. His name is Steve Blumenthal. Man, he really does a super job on really disseminating. He curates a lot of great macro type information, a lot of historical, financial historical um, information. And, you know, past is always prologue, right? I mean, things don't repeat exactly, but they, they seem to uh, repeat. And so uh, his email this week was so good, I just wanted to touch on a couple of things he said. So um, he was talking about, you know, this big move we've had in the 10-year treasury. And he said, you know, rates are spiking in the past seven months. They've gone from 0.62 to 1.52%. This is the 10-year. He goes on to say, the government is spending $8.1 per year. They say they are spending $6.6 but it comes to $8.1 when you add in the off-balance sheet items. That's 40% of U.S. gross domestic product. Worse, $4.6 of that $8.1 in spending is borrowed and thus added to the debt pile. And massive stimulus is coming in the form of Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID-19 package and future infrastructure spend. That debt will never be paid back. So the uh, House last night, I believe, passed the $1.9 trillion COVID recovery package. Uh, recall that the infrastructure package is a separate package. So that's coming too. And that's initially being slated at starting point is for the negotiation is $3 trillion. I'm not going to get into the merits of this. You know, basically, if you listen to uh, various pundits or people have analyzed it, only 9% of this $1.9 is actually slated for COVID. 
recovery. Most of it is SOPs to different constituencies on both the Republican and de Democratic sides. That's what these things always are. Uh, it's massive bailout for a lot of the mismanaged uh, Democratic uh, cities and states. But it's not even worth talking about. It, there's nothing you can do about it. What matters is, is this is what's happening and what are the repercussions. Uh, this debt will not be paid back. So the next uh, point is, this is not bullish for the dollar. No, it's not. To borrow this kind of money and spend this kind of money in one year, 40% of GDP is not bullish for the dollar. Believe me, longer term. A declining dollar is inflationary. Well, that, that makes perfect sense, right? Because the dollar is the reserve currency in most of the commodities in the world. And a lot of the services are priced in dollars. So if the value of the dollar goes down, it takes more dollars to buy the same amount of goods. Um, that's inflationary. So the cost of goods to U.S. consumers will rise. Supply disruptions, chips to steel are inflationary. Is this transitory? In the short term, maybe, maybe not. In the not too distant future, inflation. So what I, what I put in here as a blurb is there's, you know, what we've seen this last week is a lot of things just got killed. I mean, you saw the tech stocks get killed. Um, a lot of the darlings, things that really proliferated, that really did well in a very, very low interest rate environment are not going to do well as interest rates move higher. Okay. And we can look back in history. This is not the first time that rates have risen or we've had inflation. So what does good, what does well during that? Typically the stock market itself does not do well, but there are pockets that do do well, i.e. commodity and resource stocks, right? Because commodities tend to uh, do, do well in these environments of higher inflation. Um, what else? Uh, emerging markets will, will do well in a declining dollar environment because a lot of them are commodity producers. Okay, so that's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about these sectors uh, in these videos and in the newsletter, and they've responded very well. You know, during this COVID, worldwide COVID thing, we had the opportunity to really buy some really great bargains in some emerging markets. I've talked about the country of Georgia. I've talked a lot about... Um, how interested I've become in, in Africa. And, uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity around the world. The ability to access these opportunities is difficult. That's why the time to get into these is now spend some extra time and effort to do it. It's not impossible, but it takes work. You can't just get on your Robinhood account or your TD Ameritrade account and buy an ETF. By the time you can do that, the play will be over. Let me say that again. So in another way, your advantage in these markets over everyone else is that there's an dearth of information. Information is hard to get, but it's not impossible. You have to create some relationships. You have to do some investigation. You have to figure out what's going on. And then setting up accounts or accessing these markets is not impossible. There's different vehicles. Some of them are exchange traded. They're just not well known. And then the ability to have a relationship or get your butt on a plane and actually go somewhere and set up an account. So there is ways to do this, but that's where the real returns are going to be in the, this decade, I believe. So what you can expect, though, is a lot of volatility because with these rates shooting up like they are, I mean, we're experiencing a tremendous amount of volatility now. And, uh, you know, uh, even a lot of the stocks that uh, are in the portfolio, they're, they're going all over the place. But, you know, I think longer than a week or a month, you got to think out a year, two, three, five years to what you think is going to happen. So it goes on in this article that Steve Blumenthal put up. 
you know, the Fed is basically trapped here, right? Right. So Jerome Powell has made it clear during his congressional testimony that the central bank had no plans to step in and put a lid on rising rates, right? Um, remember, he said that they weren't, you know, that we'll have to see if that's really going to work because rising rates are not going to be good for the economy and can cause a lot of disruption and can cause the federal government a lot of money because based on the amount of money it has to borrow. I mean, what's, what should be the real rate of interest right now? I mean, it's 1.62 on the 10 year, but uh, you have people like, you know, Jeffrey Gonlosh saying it should be closer to 3%. Um, I don't think that the U S economy can handle a 3% 10 year treasury rate. The housing market would start to fall apart. I mean, so it's going to be very interesting. These guys have got themselves in a trap, right? So they, all of the previous machinations that the Fed has done through all the previous crises, you know, it's like steering a car on a frozen road. What you should do once you start entering black ice and losing control is take your foot off the accelerator, okay? Instead, what the Fed has done is push the accelerator to the floor and is now oversteering more and more and more until they're going to fly off the road and have an accident. And they can't stop doing what they are doing. If they do, we will have a deflationary collapse, which would result in basically a revolution. It's not going to be allowed to happen. Will we have volatility and scares? Yeah, we had that at the end of 2018. When, we, when they said they were going to allow rates to start going up, they were going to start, uh, they were going to start reducing the bond bond purchases. You remember what happened? This market dropped 20% and it, the Powell reversal. Remember that? That's that, you know, that that's what will happen. That's what I'm talking about. Volatility. So they have, they're now on this course now where they're stuck. What are they going to do? If they let things run hot and inflation ends up at the end of the year, four or five, or God forbid, even an extra seven or 8%, what are they going to do? What will, what will the 10 year be then? It'll be, they will, the economy would collapse. Rates would rise in anticipation. That's what they're doing. Rates are rising in anticipation of the inflation that's coming. Markets look ahead. So despite the clear move in markets, Powell reiterated that he does not expect to see materially high inflation in the near term and that he does not expect to take any policy action should inflation metrics move above 2% this year because that is likely to be transitory. So these guys are always out to lunch. They really don't know what they're doing. And, you know, they're not, they're, they're trapped. They don't, what are they going to do? You know, I mean, they have to go along to get along and hope it all works out and hope some, something miraculous happens and bails them out. I mean, that's what it seems like to me. And so they have one of the other Fed presidents uh, gave a speech and this is what they said. This guy's name was Clarita. I can't, I don't know. They're all their names. I forget them all, but this is what he said. We to a person, he's talking about people at the Fed are going to be patient. We are going to be very careful and we are in, going to be very, very transparent of our attentions well in advance of any decision we make in the future. Meanwhile, uh, I put this in here. Meanwhile, commodities are ripping. I mean, look at what copper, copper traded up to $4 and 50 cents a pound this week before we had the uh, pullback and, and everything late, late in the week. I mean, oil is, you know, Brent is, was pushing close to $70 a barrel. Brent oil was 68, I believe it pulled back. I mean, everything's on fire. Ag commodities, agricultural commodities are on fire. I mean, up double digit, lumber up over 100%. There's no inflation. I mean, what are these people talking about? So um, that those prices are going to work themselves into the economy. They're going to start showing up in the statistics. 
And, uh, you know, how, how far can the Fed let the 10-year go up? I mean, there's talk uh, among people that are a lot more smarter than me that they're going to start having to think about doing the yield curve control where they hold yields down. We've talked about this before. I'm not going to get into it again, but they hold yields down by going in there and buying uh, the treasuries to hold the rates down. And then the inflation rate gets above the, uh, above the uh, tenure rate, then you have negative real rates. You know, that's a way to deal with these, um, with these huge debts that we have. So a lot of things are happening. And I just want to emphasize that it means that we're going to have a lot more volatility. But you need to use volatility as your friend. I mean, uranium stocks got nuked at the end of the week. Nothing's changed fundamentally. If you, were, if you wanted to increase your positions, you, know, you should be watching these markets. If stuff drops, you know, if you're not prepared in a resource market, okay, with resource stocks that we deal with, to see a 50% move up or down, I mean down in a, in a company in a, over the course of a year, you should not be in these markets because that's what will happen. That's how volatile they can be. And nothing can fundamentally change with the company or industry. And yet these things can move all over the place. So use volatility, make it your friend. And if you know, understand what you're buying, write it down. I've said this before. And if things get cheap, then you should be buying them. If the, if the thesis hasn't changed and things go on sale, buy. Okay, that's what I do. And it's worked out fairly well. I uh, wanted to post this. This is from Basso Analytics. This is the um, basically offshore dr drilling rigs by month working in total. You see the numbers uh, this last month. What's interesting, you can see, you know, we called this. We were recovering before COVID. The, the offshore industry was recovering. Day rates were starting to inch up. And then we had the oil crash in because of COVID, and you see what happened to the amount of rigs that were drilling offshore. All the major uh, rig operators are basically in bankruptcy or working their way through bankruptcy. But you'll note the thing bottom, the industry, the, the amount of rigs working bottomed around November, and now we're slowly working our way higher. Uh, you can see this is the, um, the utilization rate. Um, you know, it's still in the dumps. I'm not ready to say, hey, we're out of the woods, but, you know, going through bankruptcy, rationalizing the fleets, getting rid of a lot of the older rigs is going to be a positive. And uh, with oil prices climbing, um, I believe that uh, this is not like a one-off. It's going to go away. This is going to be, you know, in a couple of years, we're going to have a serious energy crisis in the world because we didn't do enough investing in new reserves because shale sucked all the uh, energy and capital away from every other form of uh, oil exploration, uh, pretty much. So um, we thought shale was going to, you know, cure, cure, be the cure-all. You know, remember the nutty projections that shale oil production in the U.S. was going to go to 20 to 25 million barrels a day. It never did. It peaked out at 13. It's down about 2 million barrels already. So we're seeing some more activity on shore. But, you know, reiterating the fact that if you listen to a lot of the producers in their conference calls, they're still saying that they're not going to go rushing back in and drill. They're committed to returning capital to shareholders by debt paybacks, dividends, and share buybacks. So we'll see if that changes. Um, you know, things change. Uh, people say one thing and they do something else. But I wanted to point this out because this is another thing that no one's paying attention to. I'm tracking all of the offshore 
companies. Uh, if you listen to TransOcean, they just had their earnings report, I believe, last week. I read the transcript. Um, it's not super bullish, but they even talk about that they're starting to see more activity. Uh, they're signing some new contracts at higher rates. That's indication that, you know, we're sniffing a recovery here. So uh, it's going to be a long time. It's going to take a while. Uh, these companies are going to come out of bankruptcy um, and they'll relist their shares and then we'll be taking a look at them again. But hopefully uh, a lot of the debt that was holding those companies back and the opportunity to get rid of a lot of uncompetitive rigs or older rigs, write them all down, get them, send them off to the scrap yards and then uh, have a more lean, mean uh, industry that uh, will then be uh, have a supply deficit as the investment comes back into offshore oil, which we anticipate over the next three to five years. So I wanted to point this out too. So what I've done here is I have an account on stock charts. So I like to go in there and play around with different uh, metrics. You can do that. And um, what I did here was I just compared the price of Tesla to ExxonMobil. Why did I do this? Well, you recall that Tesla was added to the S&P on uh, December 21st of last year. And I did not agree with that. Uh, most of the money, a lot of the money that's being invested by the average people and 401ks and IRAs just goes into passive investing into S&P 500 index funds. And so these people, you know, those are market cap weighted indexes and funds. So when you have a very large market cap like Tesla, it, it enjoys, it, 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 the funds are on autopilot. So the market cap of Tesla, every $100 that comes into the fund, they have to buy the highest market cap stocks. And what are those? Amazon, Google, Tesla, all these overvalued tech stocks. So what was removed from the index to make room for Tesla? Well, ExxonMobil, you know, the you know, largest oil company, uh, private oil company, I think, in the world, or one of the largest. And it was removed. So what I did was I compared the price to each other back about five or six years. And what you can see is, you know, Tesla was very, was really outperforming ExxonMobil over, you know, since about mid 2019, right? Had this tremendous run uh, because it's a new economy, right? Tesla's going to take over the world. It's a technology company. Elon Musk is a genius, blah, blah, blah. ExxonMobil is evil. It provides a product that kills people. Uh, make it go away, sue them, all this other crap. And you'll note that the since basically since Tesla was added to the index, ExxonMobil has outperformed it. So when this is going up, Tesla is outperforming uh, ExxonMobil. When it's going down, Tesla is underperforming ExxonMobil. I just find that interesting. Um, if you go back and look in history, this has happened before. One of the things you will note, especially if you read some of the, th the things that I put up on the um, curation site that I put, this is not the first time this has happened. We, we, many smart people, before this is all over, the bull market in value and commodities and resource stocks that I anticipate this decade, this number will be back down here again. Okay. And it's going to be shocking how the, the uh, munchkins, the elves over at S&P are going to uh, wiggle out. I mean, how they're going to try to have to kick at Tesla out of the um, S&P. And then what are they going to do? I mean, this is, this is going to be bad. And what's going to start happening now that energy is outperforming 
specifically oil and gas, is outperforming technology and has been now recently. If you're running a fund, it's all about performance. No one cares about your ESG or how woke you are. If you are not making your numbers, you are going to be gone. You are going to be shining someone's shoes. And uh, what these guys do is they chase the shiny object. That's what they do. And uh, if you ain't making your numbers and if you ain't outperforming your benchmark, you are going to be gone for the most places. And they ain't going to care that you come in there and tell the investment committee that, well, you know, uh, well, we are diverse, though, and we are woke and Tesla, you know, it's ESG. They're gonna be like, hey, we're underperforming and we're losing assets. People are moving their money out of the fund guy. That's what that's reality. Okay. And I suggest that's probably what's going to happen. I do not think, you know, if you were if you were looking at this as a stock to buy and you saw this, would you be looking at this chart? Would you be a buyer of this long term or a seller of this long term? Well, I'd be seller. Look how overbought this is. Look at the extreme outperformance of Tesla as related to ExxonMobil. Now you can have your, we, I'm not going to get into the argument about this. You can have your, the facts are the facts. And this thing is way extended above these moving averages. And it's obviously rolled over on some of these other metrics, relative strength, MACD. These are technical indicators. Now, yeah, maybe it can turn around and maybe it'll make another run and and go completely vertical. That's very possible, okay? Especially with all the money printing that's going on. But I think we're starting to see the rotation that we were anticipating. We're seeing it all across the board, guys, in all these different resource markets. And these technology companies are not going to perform in a rising inflationary and a rising interest rate environment. They just do not do that. That's the historical narrative. Believe me, if, you, if your three-month or three-week career in speculating or investing in Robinhood and you're getting in now, you've had a bad couple weeks and you're going to have a bad couple years. You're going to get wiped out if you don't understand the his history, if you don't understand the intermarket um, relationships between interest rates, the dollar um, valuations. If you don't understand these things and you're just gambling and uh, that's, that's fine, you can do that. But that's why I made this channel. I did that when I didn't know what I was doing. And the worst thing that can happen to most of these guys is they have some initial success. And then they, like I said, they find a hundred dollar bill or a thousand dollar bill sitting on the street. They pick it up and also they think they're a great investor and they did something. That's not what happened. You were lucky. So you can, you know, I, I, the arrogance that I see out there, the, you know, have fun staying poor comments and all this nonsense you know, denigration of people like Buffett and stuff like that. The guy is a billionaire. He's the greatest investor of all time. Or Munger, you know, he just uh, recently had the, uh, he's the chairman of the board of another company. I forget the name of it, but they just had, uh, uh, it's a smaller company that does uh, legal publications, reviews and stuff. But anyways, he was talking about some of these things, you know, but, the, you know, everybody says these guys are washed up, right? They're fuddy-duddies, but they've been doing this for 70 years and they're multi-billionaires. But, you know, because they're not on the current zeitgeist or following that which is fashionable today, you know, but, you know, the same things were being said about these guys during the dot-com bubble, same thing during the housing bubble. And, you know, they're still there and Surge the Trader and these dinks that are on Robinhood will be gone tomorrow. So just wanted to leave you with this. I suspect over time, I'll, we'll, we'll keep looking at this, but I suspect over time, that Exxon, that Tesla is going to be do worse against Exxon Mobil over this decade. So uh, that's uh, that's my speculation. That's my view.
All right, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, again, appreciate the uh, support, appreciate the listeners, and I uh, hope you got something out of this, and we'll talk to you next week.